Casey Fitzrandolph is a legendary speed skater and Olympic champion who is from Wisconsin. He's from Verona, Wisconsin. He's a, a great source of pride for many people in Wisconsin over the years. Casey competed in three different Olympics and he reached the peak of his field for over the course of a number of years, including the gold medal in the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. Casey retired from speed skating, but continues to be a real voice of, of leadership and, and wisdom, in, not only in, in his kind of sport, but even beyond that. In a, in a few areas, he's especially interesting as he joined us in this, in this podcast. One that I found really fascinating is Casey's discussion of the mental side of high, of, um, high level performance. He has a sport that he competed in that's got a great spotlight on an individual in the in the point of competition that he would find himself in at some of the highest levels was one of just great pressure and of a lot of notoriety, especially in the Olympics. So he had a really great way of talking about the psychology of performance and, and becoming better mentally. I also really appreciated Casey's discussion um, in this podcast episode of the social component of training and how some really generous competitors from Canada welcomed him in to train with them as they prepared for the Olympics and that they didn't need to do that, but they did welcome him in and he talks about the, the dynamic of, of becoming one's best and maximizing um, one's own potential and doing so with support of others. Uh, it was really a, an interesting and a great story of, of competition, but also of friendship and of and of working together. The last thing, I, I could talk with Casey for hours because it's so fascinating to hear from him, but the last part of our interview with him that I found really fascinating was his discussion of of family commitment and, and making decisions as a family around competition and what type of investment to make in time and in resources to to reach goals that you set together not just as as a child but as an entire family so his family's story is an inspiring one and i'm really grateful that casey joined us um, on the sport and the growing good and i learned a lot from him so casey thank you so much for joining us it was great to learn from you Hey, Casey. Hey, how are you? How are you doing? You're absolutely right, Pete. Eric was, he was in, not just instrumental, I mean, he was paramount. He, he was the he was the proverbial carrot, right? Or the bunny that the dog chased around the track for me. So when I was just getting started back in 1980 and racing, you know, for the first time um, on a speed skating track here in Madison, the Vilas Park Lagoon, um, I was being told about Eric Hyden and it wasn't, you know, two weeks later in February of 1980 that I'm watching Eric win every single race at the 80 Lake Placid Olympics. So you, you know, a kid couldn't have a more, um, motivational, um, idol to look up to right out of the blocks. And, um, so he was, he was paramount in terms of, you know, in terms of me deciding I want to do this sport, not just I want to do this sport, but I, I can 
um, I can accomplish. I have I have big dreams, and I can accomplish them. Now, <laughs> I recognize in hindsight when you're four turning five and you watch somebody win five gold medals at the Olympics and you say, oh, he was from, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, and I'm from Verona, so if he did it, you know, so can I. I realized the naivety there, um, and that um, and that didn't ensure that I would eventually win a gold medal, but he was a huge reason. Um, other people that played early roles would include uh, the coach of the Madison Speed Skating Club at that time, who had coached Eric for a number of years. His name was Bob Corby. He talked to my folks um, at the conclusion of my first competition, and he told them, you have the next Eric Hyden here. This kid could be really good someday. Um, and not just those words, um, you know, those words were powerful to my folks and ultimately to me. But then Bob continued um, on as the coach of the club for a number of years. He coached me to my first national age group championship, and um, and he was really influential in my in my early years. And then, if I were going to mention two other people, they would be mom and dad. And I know that sounds cliche, but um, if mom and dad hadn't been willing to um, put their heart and soul into um, my speed skating career, my sister Jesse's speed skating career, then they wouldn't, they simply wouldn't have happened. Speed skating is not a convenient sport. It's not something that you just, you know, tell your kids to go to the playground after school and then come home a couple hours later. Um, it's a true family commitment, financially speaking, time, you know, time, sweat equity, all of the above. So those are some of the keys early on. Casey, um, do you remember at a certain point um, sitting down with your parents? I you know you're very young, but I've read that you that commitment when you say it was significant. I've read a little bit about it that you would um, leave school a little bit early each day, and, and your mom or dad would drive you all the way to the Milwaukee area for practice, um, and then drive all the way you know all the way back at back after nine o'clock as a young kid, and did this on a just a regular basis over the course of many years. That's a that's a really significant commitment. Do, do you remember uh, that decision being made at a certain point and what went into it between you and your parents? Well, <laughs> so right, it's somewhere between significant and downright crazy, right? <laughs> As I look back on it, uh, like who would do that? Um, but, you know, the answer to the who would do that question is somebody that believes they're going to accomplish something worth you know, worth making that type of sacrifice for. And um, while I don't remember the specific, you know, I don't remember a specific conversation that my folks and I would have had about, you know, here's what we're going to do, let's do this. I can tell you, Pete, that, you know, the goal, the goal and the dream were one and the same in that they were winning Olympic gold medals from literally my first year as a speed skater. And again, I'll acknowledge, you know, that that that's probably, that was naivety speaking um, to a large degree, but it doesn't change the fact that that truly was the goal and the dream. And in my mind, and I think my parents' mind, we had enough um, collective belief that I could accomplish it and naivety that I could accomplish it um, to be willing to do whatever it took to start down the road to get there. And so from a very young age, you know, it was no secret that in speed skating, you needed to, uh, you needed to 
he needed to work very hard. It's a physically, it's a very demanding sport. We also knew that it wasn't the most convenient sport and that that um, meant if I wanted to continue to get, you know, a lot of ice time, good coaching, etc., that I needed good training partners, that um, my training needed to evolve beyond Madison into Madison and Milwaukee and, and eventually beyond that. So <laughs> I can't, I'll tell you this, if, if I started, I started again, the winter of 70, of 79, 80, I was four turning five. And uh, later that year, I won my first, what I call my first major title in the world of speed skating when I became the Wisconsin state champion in the tiny tot men's division. So <laughs> how's that for prestigious, right? But it wasn't that, 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 much you know down the road not much further down the road that we were going to milwaukee on a very regular basis um to train so like you said mom would pick up jesse and i from you know the verona school district um the school district was always incredibly accommodating for us you know we were good kids we were well behaved we were you know we got we got good grades and and we put forth a good effort and and the teachers i think in the district um i'm sure took that into account but um, to their, to, you know, to their kudos, they were just incredibly accommodating for us. So we would typically either have, you know, a study hall or a phi ed or some kind of class towards the end of the year that would allow us some flexibility. Mom would pick us up either the moment that school got out or a lot of times even 15 or 30 minutes prior. Um, she'd pull up in front of the van. We would head down to Milwaukee from 3 to 4.30 would be our drive. We would do some homework. Um, in the van, we'd have an after-school snack. We'd get out at 4.30, we'd warm up off the ice, we'd put our suit on. We'd skate from 5 to 7 p.m., sometimes taking a hot chocolate break if we were you know, lucky or it was cold enough. And then 7 to 7.30, we'd cool down. 7.30 to 9, we'd be in the van, headed back towards home, eating the dinner that Mom had packed and finishing up our homework. We were proud owners of one of those you know, those funny, uh, big, like, kind of custom vans that everybody, uh, that a lot of people used to drive around back then where you had yeah. your own little, you know, swivel bucket seats and you had the, <laughs> the, the common table you could yeah. do your homework on, your own lights back there. So it was, it was a pretty good setup. Um, but that was a typical evening for the Fitzrandolphs um, between, you know, 3 and 9 p.m. And then it was kind of get up and do it again the next day, three to four evenings a week. And then on the weekends, we would head out. My mom would pick us up on Friday after school. She'd have dad with her and we would head out as a family of four to wherever the competition was for the weekend. In your great book about your family's journey, um, it's so impressive to see not only the sacrifice that you all made, but the appreciation you had for all those around you on your journey. And there's even a list of all of these people that affected you on your journey and it's a long list and so it's very evident first of all that you were you had this ongoing appreciation it wasn't even though it's an it's an individual sport in some ways it was a very much a, a network of people that were on the journey with you you mentioned one coach um and i hope i don't mispronounce his name i know he's kind of a legend coach labombard uh is that the you got it co correct um and i i read a bit about him and his, it sounds like a really, really interesting guy in, in the Milwaukee area um, as a coach, as a technical kind of genius in this world of speed skating. And even as he was able to do magic with ice, 
Um, sounds like a really interesting guide and impactful person in your journey. Yeah, you know, Lyle is kind of a an oxymoron in and of itself as I look back on him because, you know, on one hand, he was this older gentleman, you know, older, retired, you know, gentleman. You'd almost look at him, a lot of people would as an old timer out there on the ice. And yet he was very cutting edge in terms of his approach and his thoughts. So you, you was, you know, it was kind of an interesting dynamic there with him. Um, and, and Lyle never coached, um, he didn't coach entire clubs or teams. So he wouldn't, he wasn't like the coach of the Madison Speed Skating Club or, you know, uh, one of the Milwaukee clubs. He coached individuals. Um, and we worked with him for a reason you mentioned, his technical um, prowess, if you will. He, Lyle, Lyle taught me a lot of things, um, but at the top of that list was, uh, was the, the, the belief, and I will now say, I'll say the fact that you can always train harder later in life, meaning you can always get stronger later, but you can't relearn how to skate or how to, you know, your technique. And so he said, we've, we've Casey, focus on technique, 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 skating flawlessly, you know, skating better than anybody else in the world while you're young and impressionable. And then as your body matures and you get into high school and college and beyond, you can train harder, you can get stronger, you can lift more weight, etc. So don't get me wrong. The amount of the amount of sweat equity and time that we put into this was, you know, like I said, crazy looking back. But my point is we didn't just spend it beating our heads against the wall, lifting more weight or or, you, you know, from a, from a strength or a fitness perspective, it was really, it was ingraining technical perfection to the extent that we could to where you didn't have to think about trying to do everything right once the gun went off. It just happened. And you could worry about maybe strategy or, you know, some other aspect uh, of the race. So that was, that was Lyle's forte was technique. And that's why, that's why we work with them. Somehow, I'll never, I'll never understand how my folks, despite never being speed skaters, recognized that and you know hired him as a coach and and um, and allowed him to instill his wisdom on us. The other thing, Pete, that I'll say real quick that was that I remember from Lyle was um, it wasn't about winning and losing for Lyle. It was about a quest to see how good you know, Casey Fitz could be. So I remember hopping in the van. Lyle would sometimes uh, go to competitions with our family and back. And and I remember there would be weekends where we would hop in the van um, to uh, to head back home here to Wisconsin. And, um, and, you know, my folks would say, well, coach, you know, what'd you think? And I would be kind of proud in the back seat, chest puffed up a little bit because I, you know, because I just won all four, you know, finals and, you know, and was the champion that weekend. And he would say, well, I think we need to work a little bit on, you know, turn exits or, you know, the uh, the plates, meaning the bottom of the skates. I want to see those more on the start. You need to get your plates up. You're not swinging your leg around enough. And, and so there was constant constructive criticism from Lyle. It didn't matter the results. It didn't really matter the time. What mattered was 
technique and and it was at times painful but it certainly was the reason that I became a gold medalist because I did not go on to be the biggest or the strongest guy on the ice. You know, as I read more about about you and and I started honing in a little bit on this this training space where you did your work and and I'm really interested in that and and maybe it's not a big deal but maybe it is. I wanted to ask you um it, it became the Pettit Center. It sounds like there was a big gift where this beautiful or really nice indoor training um, center was established. So you have all of these really great, um, really talented top level people coming to this place to train. And um, I wanted to ask you, how big of a deal was it that that, that, that place and, and maybe the outdoor space as well were, were located where they were? Um, and, and is it, the fact that all of these gold medalists come from Wisconsin, is it because the place was there and these kids had a chance to train or did people come to Wisconsin to be near that place later? That was a little bit unclear to me. So I, I'm bumbling yeah. around here, Casey, but what I'm getting to is how important was that space and what do you remember about the space where you trained? Yeah, so um, I, I would say that the, the reason for the success that's come out of Wisconsin is is sort of all of the above. I mean, that having the facility down there in Mulcahy, having any facility, a 400, uh, an actual 400 meter artificially refrigerated, you know, ice sheet down there uh, was huge, right? There are only so many in the country. Um, very, very few, in fact, and one of them was right there. So that's a, that's a great start. Um, it was outdoors for a number of years, which you mentioned, and then eventually thanks to um, the Pettits, Jane Pettit, it became an indoor track, which allowed us to, you know, prepare even better. So the, the facility was was absolutely key. Um, it brought athletes in from, you know, around the state of Wisconsin, from Illinois, on a regular nightly basis for practice. And then, you know, as kids got older, they started to come in from other areas throughout the Midwest and eventually the entire country. So it was you know, to, to grow up uh, a, a commutable, if you're a crazy family, uh, a commutable distance away from from that facility on a, on a daily basis was was really huge. A lot of the athletes that um, that have found Olympic success, you know, really were really were our um, Wisconsin-based athletes. So I think part of that is a big part of that is that facility. I also happen to believe, whether I'm accurate or not that um, there's a lot to be said for the, the types of families that, um, that a lot of us are fortunate enough to be a part of here in the Midwest. I think that, you know, there are a lot of people around here that are, that are willing to work hard and, you know, put in an, put in an honest effort in a day and, um, and don't look for, you know, the easy route or handouts. They want to get after it. And, um, and so that was a common theme that I noticed within the skaters that I first grew up watching in, like, the Haydn family and uh, and uh, Bonnie Blair's family, Dan Jansen's family, and then later that I skated, you know, with in, like, a Chris Whitty, a Kip Carpenter, I mean, uh, all Olympic medalists, um, you know, they came from, they, they came from, tight-knit families and families that were willing to make a sacrifice, families that were willing to work hard and instilled 
you know, the importance of hard work in their children. So I think it was a combination of things. This idea of uh, the people you train with and around um, was another really interesting, compelling part of your story that I, I wanted to ask you about, which is um, not only when you were growing up here in Wisconsin, but it sounds like as you got onto the you know the world stage at the very highest levels, competing in world championships and and even you know Olympics at the very highest level, you developed this tight bond of people. Um, that you trained with in Calgary, and I, and I read um, you talk about there are a couple of particularly close friends who they welcomed you in to train with them, and, and they didn't necessarily need to do so because actually you were kind of, you know, you were competing for the same prizes in some way, um, but they welcomed you in and you trained together. Um, how important was that, Casey? And can you talk a little bit about that dynamic that you had uh, in with the guys from Canada and the people you trained with in the Calgary area? Yeah, happy to. And I'll try to be, you know, I'll try not to ramble. Those guys mean so much to me. And um, so it was coming out of the 98 Olympics in, in Nagano, Japan, where I did not accomplish the, you know, what I'd set out to accomplish going into Nagano. I had, um, my goals were to win multiple medals and preferably gold. And those are realistic, um, you know, those are realistic benchmarks for me. There was a new kind of skate that came out just prior to the 98 games called the clap skate. And I won't get into it in a lot of detail, but it was, there's a mechanical component to our ice skate, our speed skate, where there never had been before. And it, um, these skates were made by a Dutch company. There were three guys in the world, myself, a Japanese guy, and a Norwegian that they really did not want on them because we were the best in the world the year before the games. And, uh, and they threw us, and so we couldn't get them. Uh, we couldn't get them until uh, about six weeks before the games, whereas just about everybody else in the world had them 11 months before. And and um, and so Nagano did not go for me the way I had anticipated it would go. Um, but I am an, I am a huge believer in you know in needing to learn a lesson from every situation maybe it's a positive maybe it's a negative but you've got to have something to take away from a situation and I had watched Dan Jansen one of my idols go to the game several times in a row and um and for good reason um but not succeed even though he was the best sprinter in the world and I told myself going into my first games there in, in Nagano in 98 um the importance of making making that a positive experience in my own head because you know, this only happens once every four years, and I didn't want to be carrying, you know, bad luggage with me, so to speak, from one games to the next. Well, I go in there, and, you know, I'm not prepared. I don't have the skates that I want up until, you know, a month and a half before, and they don't go well. And and yet I needed to take something positive out of the games. And so one of the things that I, or at least constructive, so one of the things I took away was, well, who beat me? And what was the common theme there? And in the 500 meters, I got six. Any given country, depending on how strong of a country it is, is allowed to, to enter up to four competitors. And so the Canadians are a good skating country. They had four guys in that race. Every one of them beat me. They were second, third, fourth, and fifth in the 500. And so when I came back home, I said, my God, they obviously, they obviously have adapted to this class skate and, and know what they're doing on it. And they're friendly guys, and knew them, you know, as 
you know, friendly acquaintances or, or distant friends. And I thought, all right, uh, part of me was dejected, Pete, and wondered if I should continue to skate. Maybe this dream that I've always felt, you know, I could accomplish, it's just not meant to be. But um, so I had to do some soul searching. But at the end of the day, I kind of decided, not kind of, I decided, all right, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to do this through 2002. And uh, if I'm going to do this, I need to put every every detail um, that I can possibly put in my corner in my corner. And one of those things I felt meant moving to Canada to train with these guys who had all beat me. Um, so I made a phone call, several phone calls, in fact. I asked them if they'd have me up. And to my, um, to my surprise, they said, yeah. They had me up. Two of their four guys were based up in Calgary. The other two were, were um, French-speaking um, guys from Quebec who trained separate most of the time. But the guys that, that I went up and trained with in Calgary, Jeremy and Mike were their names, um, they, they, became, they became best friends of mine. They became two of the three guys that were best men in my wedding. And I, I will just say this about them. Uh, not only did they not have to have me up, but they didn't have to share to the level of detail that they did when I got there. Um, they shared everything they knew about the clap skate. They pushed me every day in training. We compared trade secrets. We compared, um, you know, mental approaches. We shared, you know, literally blood, sweat, and tears while we were up there. And, um, and perhaps the most impactful moment of the of the three and a half years I spent up there with those guys preparing for 2002 happened about five days before um, our 500 meter race in Salt Lake City uh, that I won. I sat down after our last little tune-up. We had a training race up there um, one evening and we were going to head down to Salt Lake uh, the next day. Um, and after that race, uh, which meant nothing. Again, it was just a tune-up. We sat on the benches uh, on the inside of the 400-meter indoor oval up there in Calgary, and there's, there's almost nobody else in the facility. And I said to the guys, guys, thank you for, you know, regardless of what happens down there next week, I want to thank you for having me up. This has been incredible in so many ways. I also am curious, though, to know, why did you agree? <laughs> Why did you agree to have me up? I mean, we're the top three guys in the world. We've swept the podium. I think there have been like 72 medals given out on the world circuit that, that year prior to the Olympics because a typical weekend, there's a World Cup circuit and then a World Championship. And at every weekend, you skate two 500-meter races and two 1,000-meter races. So there are four races and three medals. So 12 medals in a weekend. I think they've given out like 72 medals so far in the year. The three of us had won 68 or 69 <laughs> of them. I mean, it was just utter domination, right? And so it proved that, it, I mean, pardon me, they proved that, you know, that it was a good decision by them to have me up. But on the flip side now, I'm literally their biggest competition. And the three of us, you know, at any given time, you know, one of us is going to win, which means the other two aren't. So I, I'm curious, you know, well, why did you have me up? Because, you know, you might win next week this coming week, but I might win this coming week. And their response was one I'll never forget. They said, Casey, we know you might win next week. And, you know, and Jeremy says, and I know that I might win next week. Mike says, and I know that I might win next week. 
but at the end of the day, what this is all really about is personal best and, and seeing how close to the perfect race I can skate. I truly believe that if I go out there and I skate the race that I'm capable of skating, the results will take care of themselves and quite frankly, that I will win. <laughs> but even if I don't, how could I possibly be disappointed with achieving my full potential? And so, um, that was a response that, you know, that has resonated me with me to the point of, you know, remembering it like it was yesterday, 18 years later. And I truly, I'll never forget that conversation, Pete. I had come from, you know, not just a system, but I would say a country down here in America where we're really focused on, you know, getting ahead of the Joneses and one up and, you know, how can I, you know, how can I gain the upper hand? And I move up there to a foreign country, you know, thanks to guys that didn't even have to have me up. And after three years of training and sharing the podium and five days away from us both trying to, you know, all three of us trying to win the same Olympic gold medal, you know, they have the perspective to tell me, Casey, regardless of what happens next week, you've moved me closer to fulfilling my personal potential. And if I'm able to do that next week, I will come back a happy man. Never mind gold medals, silver medals, and bronze medals. I mean, I just thought that was that's incredible, and it really changed my outlook on sport. Well, that just—it seems like it's the the peak of a competitive spirit that that we hear people talk about um, competitive excellence or whatever whatever term you give it. That seems like the the peak of it right there that you're talking about. I I. Re- even more so due to what the Olympics are. The Olympics are so much tied to, at least from the outside, people who are who are promoting it to national pride and to you're carrying the, you know, your country, you're literally carrying your country's flag. And, and it would be so easy to, to not do what you just said. It makes it all the more, makes it all the more impressive, that story you just told. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I thought they were... Um... They were they were more mature than I was when they shared those <laughs> remarks with me. That's for sure. I was yeah yeah. What? I thought that was really cool. You know, it's interesting from a coach's. I mean, from a coach's perspective, you know, I'm talking from an athlete's perspective. But really, you know, I think what they what they were saying to me. I hope what they're saying to me would resonate. You know, with a coach, I believe it would, especially at, well, whether you're dealing with individuals or 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 with a team. The reality of it is you've got, you know, anywhere from one to 50 different, very different individuals out there with, quite frankly, very different levels of ultimate potential and personal best, not to mention different mindset, right? So, you know, how do you work with an entire team? I've got to believe the answer to that is one individual at a time and recognizing that if you can get every individual, you know, to, to, to um, execute and function as close to their best as you possibly can, then what more can you ask for? And I think that we have some incredible examples of that here at our university in Madison. You know, when I watch, when I watch some of the teams and athletes that we, um, that we, you know, recruit and put together out there, um, and versus some of the athletes that they need to compete against and yet the success with which they compete against them. To me, that's, 
pretty pretty impressive. And um, I just think that the power of of human potential is is um, kind of chronically underappreciated. And I think that the average man or woman can 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 do more and achieve more than most than most realize and most give themselves credit for. So part of that it's fun to watch really good coaches you know go places with athletes that maybe those athletes never even imagined they could go it it really seems like part of that what you're talking about maximizing potential so much of it is plain old-fashioned hard work and on in a team context you know being a good teammate all of these things go hand in hand um you're also really recognized casey for uh, the mental side of the game the mental side of performance and I know in your sport, it's it's particularly intense. Um, I had the chance to speak with, uh, you know, some other individuals who are you know, like a golfer who does, you know, golfers are right in the limelight or a, a fighter who's right in the limelight. But in your sport, you know, the, the, the pressure that comes in these little chunks of time, I can imagine the mental side of the game is especially important. I know you've excelled at that. Are there, again, I mentioned to you before, we could talk about this for hours, I'm sure. I know it's something you've talked about a lot, but where do you start to think about mental performance or being better mentally when you talk with a coach or with a, with a young athlete? Yeah, when, did, when did I start? Or I, I, I didn't phrase it real well. Like, where do you even start? Like, what are the first things you would talk about with a, with a young coach who's developing or, or even with a young athlete when you start to think about being at your best mentally? Yeah, where do you start? Well, that's a good question. I think um, from my perspective, I, I think it starts, with, um, it starts with a belief. Somebody, you know, the importance of instilling belief in a... It doesn't even matter. It doesn't have to be a child, a child, an adult, in an athlete, let's just say. The importance of instilling belief is critical because without belief, you know, hard work, dedication, you know, all of the other things that are necessary, repetition, they're, they're not going to happen. So, you, you know, the athlete has to be, has to buy into the dream, the goal and the dream, whatever that is. And, and so if you can get them to believe, um, that is, depending on the athlete, sometimes not very difficult, and, and other times, oh well, other times impossible, and it isn't going to happen. But let's just assume that most athletes that are out there are out there because they have a dream and um, and a little bit of intestinal fortitude to chase it. Um, so keeping them aligned with their belief, with it, with that belief that they can accomplish it, is key. And then um, and then just working with them to overcome you know, all of the hurdles because there are many, regardless of who you are, what you do and, you know, and what level you, you take it to. I remember, um, seeing, um, working with a psychologist for the first time when I was just turning 12 years old and, you know, you can take that for whatever you will, form your own opinion of it, right, wrong, or indifferent. But at the end of the day, my folks, were incredible at at getting me to believe that I could accomplish my dream, and then as a result, being willing to do whatever it took to accomplish it, even for you know a five foot eleven hundred 
at that time at my peak 176 pound, you know, pretty average, pretty average dude. Um, and the mental side of that was an area that I found, I felt huge advantage over a lot of athletes. Um, you, you know, we can, there's no shortage of people with, with pretty incredible levels of talent out there, but to be able to perform at a really high level and then to be able to do it on a consistent and, and purposeful or, you know, basis, meaning when it actually matters, um, that's a, that's another ball game and that's where the mental side of things comes in. So we focused on, on visualization. Um, I can't tell you how many times I watched myself with my eyes closed, skate the perfect 500 meter race, execute it stroke by stroke, turn entries, you know, turn exits, and even backing that up, you know, to the anticipation and the explosion physically that I would have when the gun went off. I mean, I saw it hundreds of times, hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of times. And then relaxation. Um, you know, a lot of us athletes are pretty wired. And and when these moments occur, they're big moments for us. As an Olympian, it's once every four years. You better be able to bring yourself down when you need to bring yourself down, not just get yourself up. So I've looked at, I worked on relaxation. And then the other thing I worked on, the third kind of stool, leg of the stool that I want to mention is um, perspective. Uh, I, I was part of a... Of a and we call it athletes in action, a Christian, uh, a group for Christian athletes, um, to meet on a regular basis. Didn't matter the sport, none of that mattered, but we'd get together and we'd talk a little bit about, you know, about our, our faith, um, and our belief in, you know, in our God. And, and I don't want to dive deep into the religious side of it, but my point is, um, it allowed, it allowed me perspective. And what I mean when I say that is, um, it allowed me to say to myself, okay, Casey, you will have put in, you know, 20, 23 years of your life into this, into this dream that you're going to try to fulfill, you know, in a few months in Salt Lake city in 2002, that's a lot of time. Um, and you know, this means a lot to you. Let's not try to deny that it's important. It's incredibly important. <laughs> So, so let's call a state a state, all right? Now you're going to go over there and one or two things are going to happen regardless of how you're prepared between now and then. You're either going to succeed or you're going to fail if we want to be just really black and white about it. You're either going to accomplish your goal or you're not. Okay. Well, what do you want to do? Well, I definitely want to succeed. Okay. Um, well, what if you fail? And if I had to answer that question to myself originally prior to getting into this group and, and reflecting, I, I would have said, oh, my God, I don't know what if, what will happen if I fail. It'll be terrible. Um, I can't even fathom that given everything I put into it. But I had to kind of take a step back and say, you know what? But what does this really matter? I mean, it matters. But if I fail in Salt Lake City and I fall flat on my face um, after that gun goes off, the sun's still going to come up the next morning. My mom and dad are still going to love me. My fiance is still going to love me. And I'll be, you know, healthy, young, and facing, you know, 50 or 60 years of a pretty good, you know, life in the Midwest of, you know, the United States of America. Like, life, life could still stand to be a whole lot worse. And so it was really, 
it was it was coming to terms with what failure looked like that allowed me to then set it aside and focus on what success looked like. And from from that point on, in those in those uh, in those months nearing nearing Salt Lake City games, I was able to focus on the what if I succeed um, side of that sense versus that fear of failure that is a very natural way for all of us to fall off of the proverbial fence. And uh, and I could think about and visualize that much more clearly myself skating the perfect race and, you know, and really just focusing on the positive, having come to grips with, with the negative. I think that's I think that's paramount because we all inherently to varying degrees struggle with that fear of failure. It's a very natural response, but I truly believe it can be what do you call it, trained or thought processed out of the equation to where it's not the burden that it is for the other, I'll say pick a number, seventy, eighty, ninety percent of our competitors. You've talked about the significant, you know, the mental side, the psychological stuff, the the physical commitment, the the social support structure, Casey, even the, you know, the the physical facilities and how how important all of these things are. So that there are all these variables that go into this to preparing to compete at such a high level, um, and and it's it's kind of remarkable to me look to to look over your trajectory and to see how that all came together and through your commitment and through the people who coached you and worked with you. And, and I just having the, um, being fortunate to know you know that you're still involved in sport and know that you still are closely tied into kind of the sporting community and, and you observe and work with a lot of coaches. Um, what, what are your perspectives on the state of coaching now and especially kind of at the youth level when you are around Wisconsin kind of high level youth sport circles are you optimistic about certain things or and are there certain aspects of coaching these days that make you a little bit uh concerned <laughs> it's a good question uh it's kind of a loaded question Pete um no I appreciate you asking it I will say overall, I'm very optimistic. Um, I think that that as a whole, um, uh, the coaching that's available to kids, and that can be through you know organized paid coaches, and it can be even through volunteer parenting. I think as a whole, overall, um, we're doing significantly better. I think the quality of coaching has improved. I think coaches are generally more educated, both on um, physical subject matter and sports, but also on um, on the the mental or psychological side, um, and so I think those are all. I think those are those are really positive. Those are those are encouraging components of it. I think you know the challenge that we seem to have right now is a little bit of conflict that's probably natural and inherent between. On one hand, youth sports have become you know, big business. And, um, you know, I referred earlier to kind of the, like keeping up with and getting ahead of the Joneses and, and, you know, the Pistons are just as guilty of that as anybody else that has their, you know, their clubs and, you know, their kids in club sports. I mean, you and I have spent time on the sidelines chatting about this. And, you know, we're really kind of all in as families and our kids, we want to see our kids succeed. Um, and so there's, 
there's probably some added uh, there's some added pressure there from a, from a parent's perspective that the kids and the coaches might feel there's more money involved um, and there's just a bigger commitment all the way around by everybody involved and so again the positive one of the positive impacts of that I think is that the coaching has generally gotten better um, the challenge then becomes you know are, are we as parents too much for our kids or are the coaches a little bit too much for the kids and what I think makes that even a bigger challenge is in some ways we are more intense with our kids when it comes to sports now as a society than we were, you know, 30 years ago when, when we were young. Um, but at the same time, we're also softer on our kids in a lot of ways now than our parents probably were with us or, you know, a generation before that. And so um, we've got a lot of kids that, um, you know, have have it um, have, have pretty good lives, and uh, <laughs> and you know maybe don't do the amount of you know chores, don't show the same uh, level of respect, um, and just you know feel maybe just a little more entitled to a pretty cushy life now than we did, and then we're we're introducing them to a more intense competitive nature at a, or, or um, uh, environment, and at a younger age than than previous generations and I think those two are a bit conflicting in the in the in the messages and the data uh, that these kids have to process at pretty young ages so I know I'm kind of getting into the weeds and and out of scope it's a challenge for the kids but getting back to your coach's question yes I think that our coaching is improving I'm optimistic about it um, I think it's a challenge probably for every coach to balance um, success and progress and intensity and some of the lessons that competition learn with um, fun and um, entertainment and, you know, uh, and some of the other lighthearted aspects that are also important to sports. Well, that, that last point you made about um, the mental side of just perspective, that's a, that's a powerful thing that even at, even at the kids level, um, we have to keep and and um i know you do a really great job of that and i sometimes when i look at when there are problems sometimes it is that that perspective issue of of seeing you know people putting their whole life's everything in one basket and it's around their kids sport performance that can be a that can be a problem um but that, that that's a great insight that i hadn't really thought of that before well casey this, yeah and, and, oh, go, go ahead yeah, you go ahead you go ahead it, it's it's also it's you know I, I talk in generalities there for a little while, but it's it's certainly you know every kid, every kid, every person is different. Every athlete is is different too. And I mean, from my perspective, it's easier to be an athlete than it is to be a parent or probably a coach. I've never been a coach at any you know significant level, so it's a little bit harder for me to relate there. But you know, parenting versus versus the athlete. I mean, as an athlete. You know, you you make your decisions based on opportunity, but you also make your decisions based on your mindset. And, you know, and if I believe I can do this and I'm willing to kick my own rear end for, you know, enough days and enough weeks and enough months and enough years, then, you know, then I believe I'll get there. So let's go. Let's do it. Um, as a parent, you have the 
uh, benefit and conflict of hindsight. <laughs> and you know that the odds of any individual, your child or children included, you know, becoming a professional athlete or an Olympic champion are incredibly long. Um, and yet a lot of us whose kids are involved in sport and, and as a result, we're still involved in sport. We have that level of passion and we want to see the success and, you know, how do you handle, how do you handle those? That's a real challenge. And same for coaches. Now you've got to handle a team of kids that vary from, you know what, I may have awesome talent and they may not have any, but either way, I don't really want, I don't really want to work at that, at this. This is a, this is just a game, you know, or I don't care. My parents want me to be here. And you're trying to marry that on the same squad that you're marrying, you know, with a kid that is like, this is everything to him. They can't think of anything else in life all day, including all day at school, other than becoming a professional athlete in this sport. And they will literally jump off of a cliff for you. You know, that's just, to me, that's fascinating. And it's a, and it's a, it's a really challenging melting pot from a parent's perspective, even more so from a coach's perspective, I've got to believe. <laughs> 